1: The following podcast contains descriptions of murder that some listeners may find upsetting. Some scenes have been dramatised.
2: The search at Pataudry was based on information that came in almost three weeks after the, the murder. So the inquiry team decided they would set up at Pataudry and, and inspect every mail that came in to see if anybody had cuts to hands.
3: It was just something she had in her head that, yeah, he's, he's going he's, he's killed Dodd and he's, he's going to come for me. At night, when she locked that door and she was on her own, that was when she really struggled.
4: I always, when I went into the front of that car, it was pitch black. I always kind of looked behind me just in case there was somebody in the back
5: seat. That's
4: just what something like that does to you.
5: He is highly callous, highly dangerous. Someone who does not actually... Have fear at all who would be on the police radar.
3: She would have wanted to see somebody being punished for, for what they did to, to Dodd and destroying her life as well. Do you want justice, not just for Dodd,
1: but for Jessie,
3: for the whole family?
1: In the previous two episodes, we heard about the night of Thursday, 29th of September 1983, when local taxi driver George Murdoch picked up a fare in the West End of Aberdeen. On the way to his passenger's destination, for some unknown reason, George pulled into a side street where his assailant took a cheese wire to his throat and strangled him to death. Two 15-year-old boys witnessed the murder, but understandably they were too traumatised to give a description. A barmaid told the police that on the night of the murder... She had asked a man, too drunk to be served more alcohol, to leave the bar, close to the time when George picked up his killer, which also matched a description given by a witness who saw someone running from the murder scene. From 8,000 witness statements, these were the only two relevant leads, but unfortunately, they came to nothing. Then, three weeks after the murder, an assistant at a fish and chip shop, a mile from the crime scene, came forward and told the police that approximately 15 minutes after the murder, a man came into the shop with several scratches to his face, a bruised eye and a cut hand. Finally, the police had a lead. Cheesewire Killer: Episode Three: Jesse In this episode, we’ll hear more about Jesse, George’s wife who was made a widow. We’ll hear how the murder affected the rest of her life, both in the short and long term. But first, let's look more closely at one of the strongest leads in this investigation. Looking at the newspaper articles from 1983, it's not clear why this witness waited 19 days to come forward with this possibly crucial information. It's difficult to believe that with all of the local media coverage around the time of the murder, that this individual wouldn't have linked what she encountered that night to this murder. The most likely explanation would have been that she was scared. The person who she served that night could have been responsible for a gruesome murder. So, it was understandable that she would have been reluctant to come forward, fearing that the killer would come after her, seeking reprisal for her actions. However, on the 18th of October, the fish and chip shop employee did come forward and told the police that about 15 minutes after the murder, a man with several scratches to his face, a bruised eye and blood dripping from his thumb and first three fingers of his right hand came into the fish and chip shop to order food. The shop was about a mile from the murder scene and this distance would take approximately nine or ten minutes to run. So this sighting does fit the timeline.
2: Next, please. Next, please. (laughs) You were a while with the fairies? What can I get you?
0: Uh fish and chips, please.
2: Salt and vinegar. Uh no. That's one pound fifty-five pence, please. Botonas,
6: thanks. We're just waiting for the chips to fry. It'll just be a couple of minutes. Okay.
1: If you think about the attack that George suffered how he fought back against his assailant and that a cheese wire was used. It's completely plausible that these injuries could have been caused by someone who carried out an attack of this kind. Could this person have been George's killer? Detective Inspector James Callender from Police Scotland, the current senior investigating officer on the case, has his doubts.
2: I don't think any rational person would go and you know, commit a a crime like he's done. Whether that person knew at that moment that he'd killed George, I mean, only he he knows, but would you go and buy something in a fish shop? Just, you know, I'm not so sure you would, so. And in any case, that person was never identified and the people that were in the chip shop at the time, eh, only one or two of them have ever been identified
1: and came forward. You can understand James's reservations. After all, the idea of walking calmly into a fish and chip shop with cuts and bruises on your face and hands just minutes after viciously attacking someone is impossible to comprehend. But not to the psychologists who I have interviewed for this podcast. Dr. David Holmes is a criminal psychologist who specializes in serious crimes you'll hear his professional opinion after we hear those of Helen Hart, a chartered forensic psychologist with over 20 years experience of working with convicted murderers.
7: Somebody who scored highly in terms of psychopathy wouldn't exhibit the same emotional response to murder or to violence as somebody who wasn't psychopathic. It might just be that actually the murder in itself may have shocked them and angered them, but that when that dissipated, they were then able to think, oh, actually, I'm I'm hungry, I'm going to go get something to eat. So a psychopath could do that, absolutely, yeah. I can't imagine that somebody who wasn't psychopathic would be able to do that, because I would imagine somebody who wasn't would have been extremely fearful, not only of what happened, and not only in terms of the judgment, the way he was playing it, that this went wrong and what that means for him, but also fearful of being apprehended.
5: If it was him, and obviously there are a lot of people who would say, no, it's ridiculous. If I was in that position, I wouldn't kill somebody and then go into a chippy and order food and expose exposed by injuries. I think that if it was quite clearly, he's highly callous, highly dangerous, someone who does not actually have fear at all, um, you know, in, in his um, mental remit. Um, so it, it would be someone who would be a callous criminal who would known for other crimes, who would um, be on the police radar for other reasons, um, it does seem kind of almost incredible that no one else, uh, no other description, had actually tied in, uh, police description that is, tied in <clears throat> with this chap, um, given the fact that he perhaps didn't really care um, who saw him after the crime, Uh, and the fact that someone may mentally record the fact that he's covered in blood uh, shortly after, um, you know, killing someone um, by, you know, getting his hands covered in blood. It it would seem incredulous that the person would not be sensitive uh, or forensically sensitive. um, And it doesn't really tie in with the idea that no one else has actually really reported very much at all subsequently. Um, on a personal basis or, a you know, a friend basis or a neighbourly basis, that no one has really noticed this chap, apart from this lady and
1: the chippy and one or two reports of a running man. With no other strong leads to investigate, the murder squad took this lead very seriously. On the 22nd of October 1983, just three days after this witness came forward, Almost 23,000 fans arrived at Pittodrie Stadium, home to Aberdeen Football Club, to watch Aberdeen play Celtic. However, unbeknown to these football fans, once they entered through one of the 44 turnstiles, 75 police officers were waiting to check the hands of every man aged between 16 and 30 years old, hoping they would catch their killer. The police officers took the details of anyone with cuts on their hands.
2: Hi there, I'm PC Willis from Grampian Police. Hello, officer. We're carrying out inquiries today about a murder that happened last month. Oh yeah, the taxi driver? Yes, that's right. Terrible, that. Can you show me your hands, please? Yes, of course. How did you get these cuts? I work for a building firm. I'm always getting cuts and scrapes. It's just part of the job. Is it okay if I take some details from you, please? Yeah,
1: of course. Thanks. Can I start by taking your name, please? Detective Superintendent Jim McLeod, who was leading the investigation, told reporters at the time that he never realised there would be so many people with cuts on their hands. That weekend, the murder inquiry team started to check the details. and the alibis of every man with injuries to his hands, however, to the huge disappointment of the murder squad, this ambitious operation revealed no fresh leads.
2: The police at the time decided I think it was the Aberdeen Celtic match at Pateaure they decided they would they would check the the hands of everybody that came into that game to see if anybody was entering with any any hand injuries, and that was obviously didn't didn't produce anything, but it could have been the person, but at the same time, would you go and buy something in a fish shop? Just, you know, you know what a rational person would do that?
1: This must have come as a crushing blow to the team of officers who at the time were working 12 to 16-hour days. But the killer had gone underground. Of course, it's completely possible that the man in the hotel bar and the man in the fish and chip shop, were not the same person. Nor were either of these men George's killer. And if this was the case, this investigation was now literally like searching for a needle in a haystack. An international haystack. Because of the discovery of oil, Aberdeen was now an international city. In the 1960s, Aberdeen was one of the UK's poorest cities. Once home to the formidable granite, paper manufacturing and shipbuilding industries and a thriving fishing port, Aberdeen now found itself in a downhill spiral, plummeting into economic decline. Then, in October 1970, the city's fortunes did a complete U-turn when the oil company British Petroleum now BP, discovered a huge reservoir of crude oil in the North Sea, 110 miles from the Aberdeen coastline. As fast as you could say, we've struck oil, what everyone thought was Aberdeen's guaranteed bleak and grim destiny became exactly the opposite when Aberdeen literally struck gold, black liquid gold. With a string of new oilfield discoveries, North Sea oil production grew faster than in any other location in the world. And with its buoyant growth, the population of Aberdeen dramatically increased, rising by over 40,000 people. People came from all four corners of the world. On the streets of Aberdeen, it almost became the norm to hear a howdy as a Texan oil executive tilted his huge stetson towards you. Oil workers from all over the world flew into the city, riding on its wave of good fortune. Some stayed short-term, whilst others would just come and go in and out of the city whilst travelling on business. But for the police investigating the murder of George Murdoch, this influx of people caused a significant problem. What if the drunk man or the fish and chip shop customer both said to have had a local accent, were not the culprit. What if these men, seen by witnesses on the night of the murder, were simply seen in the wrong place at the wrong time? Then, the person the police were looking for could have been anyone. They could have come from anywhere. Anywhere in the world. So, it's fair to say that grampian police's needle just got smaller, and their haystack just got bigger, a lot bigger. It's obviously impossible not to feel utter sorrow for what George Murdoch went through that night. Being violently attacked, he must have been scared beyond belief. And of course, losing your life at only 58 years old, with so many years to live. But he was gone. And it was Jessie who would have to live the rest of her life grief-stricken, after losing her beloved husband. She was a nervous woman at the best of times. And the murder of George had catastrophic effects on both her physical and mental health. Here's Alex Mackay, George and Jesse's nephew.
4: Outwardly, she was still the same Jesse. I mean, I wasn't much to her in the base case. She weighed about 40-odd kilos. Um, um, So she was very slight. She was very nervous as well uh, in any event. I mean, if you spoke to her, you wouldn't know, but her health deteriorated drastically. I mean, she had a lot of uh, in and outs of the hospital, etc. And clearly to do with the a lot of it to in my mind to do with the the killing she was and it's not rational, but goodness me, none of us have been in this position, but it's not rational, but she always thought the killer was going to come back after her. I don't think that ever left her. she always felt that that was likely to happen to her because remember the, the killer had his wallet um so had his details his home, etc, and so to her mind for some reason she was going to. She was going to be next on on his list. So, even I used to, when I used to go to the work, I used to go into the, my garage at the back of the house. It was dark, and I, when I went in the car, so it's not rational. I'm saying it wasn't rational for my aunt. It really wasn't rational for me. I always, when I went into the front of that car, it was pitch black because there was no light in the garage. I always kind of looked behind me just in case there was somebody in the backseat, did that for about, the, right throughout that whole winter, got
1: out of that eventually, but it just, that's just what something like that does to you. It's more than likely that George's death was a random attack, and if his killer had been picked up by another taxi that night, they instead could have been killed, and George could have safely returned home to Jesse. So the likelihood of the killer making this personal was unlikely. I asked Dr David Holmes if he thought the killer may have targeted George's wife.
5: Um, I don't think there was any chance of that. Um, Any particular sort of effort would would not really have any consequence. Why would the killer want to do that? Um, Unless there was some kind of grudge, some kind of something hidden something we don't know about about george his family and other people in terms of someone holding a grudge sufficiently or or some inside knowledge sufficiently to want to kill him um and then go on to expose themselves again um to um leaving evidence to to kill his wife um, for no particular purpose not even petty cash i wouldn't imagine um so There was no possibility that that would ever happen.
1: The theory that this was a random killing was also shared by local taxi drivers throughout the city, so much so that they remained very cautious for quite some time after the murder. Jim Singer was a taxi driver in 1983.
2: Well, for me personally, and I know a few of the other guys, for a long, long time afterwards, wouldn't have anybody sitting behind us. And a single man in his own wouldn't, wouldn't be sitting and, and make him sit in the front. And and that went on for quite a while. You know, we were wary. The risk to the job, it, you know, it just became highlighted uh, for, a, for a long, long time. So, yeah, we were all kind of wary of that because you didn't know, you know, if it was going to happen again or he just didn't know. So, yeah, yeah, we were very apprehensive.
1: Although the killer going after Jesse would have been a very unlikely scenario with the killer having thought to have stolen George's wallet, which contained ID that included his address. It's understandable. Along with the trauma Jesse had suffered, she would be terrified
7: unless there was evidence that George had been targeted for a particular reason it wouldn't be likely that he would then want to be going after his family or going after people um, associated with him. I'm just trying to think of the stranger murders that I've been involved with and that's just not a feature of any of the ones that I've worked in because you know why would it be unless they wanted to target him for a reason in which case you'd have all of that information already out there. But I suppose however unlikely it is that doesn't change the fact that his wife being fearful for the rest of her Life is a very rational response for her. So, yeah, she probably developed PTSD as a result of what happened to her husband, quite likely, um, was traumatised for the rest of her life. Maybe the police, maybe somebody did try and reassure her and say, it's very, very unlikely, there's no evidence that this person would do that. It wouldn't stop her being scared that that might happen. That's a really sad way for her to end the rest of her life.
1: Detective Inspector James Callender from Police Scotland is confident that Jesse would have been reassured that she was safe.
2: The care of Jessie would have been at the forefront of their mind. That's for sure, and it always is, because you know that's that's what we do as police officers. We're there to detect detect crime, but first and foremost, we're, we're there to protect the public. So that would have been the, the one of the main concerns back then. And Jessie was never the same after that. Yeah. I would imagine passed away herself with a broken heart, I would. I would suggest, yeah. but yeah. lived in some fear thereafter, and understandably so.
1: It's almost impossible not to feel affected by this murder. It highlights the worst possible kind of human nature. But whilst I spoke to George Murdoch's nephew, Alex, he also revealed to me an act at the very opposite end of the spectrum. I just couldn't believe this incredible act of kindness that was shown towards Jesse... George and Jesse's neighbours had a son and daughter. Their son was only 13 years old when George was murdered. George's nephew, Alex, recalls. He came
4: home one day and he says to his mum, Mom, he says, I've got something I've been thinking very deeply about that I'd like to do for Jesse. What I'd like to do, he says, is I know how worried that Jesse uh, feels about being herself. He says, so what I'm like to do is actually go overnight and stay with her overnight until she feels, feels a lot more comfortable being on her own. Um, and they obviously discussed that as a family, says, well, are you sure you wish to do that? And they said, yes, I'm
1: absolutely sure I wish to do that. He was 13 years old, just a child. I found this act of kindness completely Unbelievable. And I really wanted to speak to this boy about Jessie. I think that it's important that we hear more about Jessie. And this young boy was probably one of the closest people to her after she lost her husband. So let me rewind things here slightly for full disclosure. When I was first told by George's nephew Alex about this boy, he chose, and understandably so, not to share the boy's name with me. He just didn't feel comfortable that this boy, now a man, would have wanted to be identified. After not being in contact with him for almost 40 years, he couldn't have given me his contact details, even if he had wanted to. So Alex, at that point, only referred to him as The Boy. In an attempt to find The Boy, I searched online for hours trying to find anything at all about George and Jess's neighbours. But I found nothing. I then turned to social media. In recent years, various police appeals have sparked online conversations on local Facebook groups about this unsolved murder. And whilst reading through them, something caught my eye. At the bottom of one of the posts, I read the following. Hope you are well, from David, that lived next door to Dodd and Jesse. I sent him a message introducing myself. I explained that I was producing a podcast about George's murder and asked if he would consider being interviewed. He sent me a message saying that he would like a couple of days to think about it. And because this was a huge thing that him and his family had went through, He also wanted to speak to his parents as a common courtesy. At this point, I didn't even know that he was actually the boy I was looking for. He wasn't necessarily the boy who stayed with Jesse. I also wanted to reassure him about the intentions of this podcast. So I sent him a voice message. Hi David. So I'm putting this podcast together in
0: complete cooperation with Dodd's family. Robina and Alec Mackay are fully supportive of this podcast and they're going to be interviewed as part of it also. The police are also fully cooperating with it. I'm interviewing a member of Police Scotland next week. The aim of the podcast is to try to raise awareness of the case. As a neighbour, it would be great to speak to you. I hope you don't mind me asking, David,
1: but at the time, I believe that one of their neighbours, a young lad of 13, 14 years old, stayed with Jesse for some time. And I'm wondering
0: if that could possibly be you. It would be great to speak to that boy who did that incredible thing for Jesse. Um, anyway, I'll let you go, David. I'll um, come back to me whenever you feel comfortable, whenever you've got a chance to speak to your mum and dad. Um, and your
1: wife. Minutes later, he replied, appreciate the voice message to confirm it was me that stayed with Jesse. I'd found him. For over a week, we exchanged a number of messages. He consulted his family and then he agreed to be interviewed. The boy, now a man, in his mid-fifties is called David. We meet at his house and we sit down at his kitchen breakfast bar. His wife Rachel joins us. David has a short and tidy beard and moustache. He's bald and I can tell he's nervous. But he's also such a warm guy. Considering what he did for Jesse, that comes as no surprise. Rachel, his wife, has short dark hair. She wears glasses and grips onto David's hand supportively throughout the interview. Within minutes of speaking to David, it quickly becomes very obvious just how much George and Jesse meant to him. George and Jesse, for
3: me growing up were another set of grandparents They didn't have family, couldn't have family So they looked at my mum and dad as kind of like a a son and daughter And um, me and my sister as as, as grandchildren that they never had Um, So yeah it wasn't just like neighbourly, it was family But yeah, no, he was just, he kept himself to himself. Hard-working and genuine, down-to-earth, private. Um, But would do anything for you. Jessie was just a beautiful woman, inside and out. And um, again, we would do anything
1: for you. Hard-working woman.
3: But yeah, just family to us. Really were amazing people.
1: At this part of our interview, a phrase pops into my head. You can't choose your family. Well, in David's case, he could and he did. David chose George and Jesse as his grandparents and they chose him and his sister as their grandchildren. When David speaks about the couple and remembers the good times, his face just lights up. But then sometimes I can see his smile disappear quickly replaced by a look of sadness, as some of the terrible memories come flooding back to him.
3: I remember the night like it was yesterday. Absolutely horrific. Um, my dad was away on business. Um, I went to bed for about nine o'clock. We had school the next day. Fell asleep. And then I heard... I heard a noise, it was like, what's a noise? And then I realised it was, it was actually howling. It was a howling noise, it was, somebody crying, and I actually thought it was my mum. I thought maybe her and my dad had had an argument on the phone or, and I thought, yeah, maybe they've, they've fallen out. And kinda, wasn't even dozing back off, but then next thing was my mum came into the bedroom and was like, I need you to sit and look after your sister. I need to go through um, and sit with Jesse. something's happened. Dodd's dead. The next time, it was downstairs and mum was through the house. I think at the time, there was two or three policemen in our house. Um, and I'd said to one of the policemen, I, I don't know what's happened, I don't understand. Um, my mum says, Dodd's been killed. And automatically I'd said, he was a really good driver. I can't believe he's been in a, an accident, he was a really good driver. And I was just told it wasn't an accident. And that was it. And I was like thirteen years old, being told by a policeman that you know this this wasn't an accident, and you you, you don't know what to think. You're just heads all over the place, and I just like sat in the living room, kind of in disbelief, and police coming back and forth between Jesse's house and our house, and different policemen in and out. Um. Yeah, it was a long night and all I could hear was Jessie screaming, wailing, coming through from the living room next door. And that was all you could hear. Wasn't it just Dod that died that night? Part of Jessie died that night as a person. Part of her just left. And it was horrible to see. She was convinced that whoever had killed Dodd was going to come for her. It was just something she had in her head that yeah, he's he's gonna he's he's killed Dodd and he's he's gonna come for me. Um I think because Jessie lived in the end house as well. She lived in the gable end and there was like a big bit of park land before it and then a little lane and she, she just used to think somebody was gonna he was gonna come in over the fence and break into the house during the night. Um she just had that in her head that, that was what was gonna happen. She would do what she had to do to get through the day. And I think it was just at night when she locked that door and she was on her own. That was when she really
0: struggled and we just break down. Mum?
3: Yes,
8: darling?
0: Jessie. She must be really lonely now. Well, yeah,
8: she will be. She's missing George and she's never lived by herself and, and she's scared that whoever murdered... Uh, that whoever did that to George that he'll come back for her but they won't David
0: I know mum is it okay with you if I stay with her you know overnight in the spare room just for a while just so she feels safer
8: oh David that's such a nice thing to offer yes I think Jessie would like that I think she'd like that very much indeed are you sure though
0: yes I am mum I want to do it Oh,
8: you're such a kind and thoughtful boy, David. Come here,
0: get off. You'll mess up my hair.
4: They then went uh, next door and uh, explained to Jesse what what David had suggested and how they supported him in doing that. and of course she over the moon. That that would happen. He would uh, he would do all these homework. he'd do all these things that he needs to do. Watch television and go through um, about say 10 o'clock at night. Um, so this he started off doing that, and uh, it continued for amazingly, it continued for two and a half years. That really helped her a crucial part of uh, the her grieving process, her recovery, whatever you wish to call it. She felt safe with somebody being in the house with her. Again, as I mentioned, always thinking this guy might come back, just having another person in there so could raise the alarm or what have you. So, I mean, it really helped her. Probably for the first time in the longest time she was able to sleep, sleep reasonably well at night. That really helped heal a lot of the, the open wounds. I can't think of anything uh, high enough to say about uh, David and doing
1: something like that. God bless him. Really, God bless him. Just in case you thought you may have misheard what Alex just said. Yes, you heard correctly. David stayed with Jesse, never missing a night for almost two and a half years. I still had
3: my life from my pals and everything like that. They didn't know what I was doing. Because I would just say to them, yeah, I've got to be in by nine o'clock. And I would go in through the front door, go to the back door, and she would have a tea and a biscuits all sitting ready for me every night at nine o'clock. We would just sit and chat, watch telly, whatever. And yeah, Jessie would go to my bed, I would go in bed. Jessie,
5: are you still awake? Yes, David, uh, I'm awake.
0: Do you believe in heaven? Yes, I do. Why? Do you think George is in heaven?
8: Yeah,
5: I, I do, David. Dodd was a good man, so... Yes, I, I do think he'll be in heaven. Why do you ask?
0: I don't know. I suppose I'd just like to imagine George happy and smiling in heaven.
5: <laughs> Me too, David. Me too. <laughs> no. Go to sleep, or you'll be falling asleep at school tomorrow.
0: OK. Night-night, Jessie.
5: Night-night, David.
0: Some nights
3: were horrific, when she was just basically screaming, um, sobbing her heart out. Just nights that she was so, so bad, just panic and just upset, and God was her life. He was our her, her world. And um, yeah, she's never ever came to terms with what happened. Um didn't think anything about it. It was just like it's what you do. There would be nights like you'd hear her crying, and like knock on her door and go in and just give her a hug. Just give her a hug. Um until she fell asleep. It might sound strange like a thirteen year old. <laughs> doing that, but... um, She's like your grandmother. Yeah, she was.
1: Sensing that David may have just felt slightly uncomfortable telling me that, as a 13-year-old boy, he would climb into bed and hug Jessie, David's wife, Rachel, offers a supportive observation. She was slightly off mic, so you may not have been able to hear her clearly enough just then. But Rachel said she was like your grandmother. Hearing David tell me this in his own words, even without Rachel's observation, I feel anything but uncomfortable. I just feel in total awe of the love and support this 13-year-old boy offered Jesse.
3: There was a couple of nights where I had to I had to go downstairs and phone Mum next door or just bang on the wall and the knew if it was something, but it was the one that I had to phone them and say, look, I, I don't know what I'm doing, I can't handle it. And she was inconsolable that night. Um, just for love and respect that you had for them, that's what made you do it. I think the first year was the hardest. I didn't really look at it at like a timescale. When I look back on it, I just think, "Yeah, I did that from the 13th birthday to the 16th birthday." And at 13 years old, you're not looking to see how she's progressing. I just wanted her to be, "You're okay when I'm here. I want to make sure you're okay." It's hard to describe, but she was just she wasn't she wasn't the same Jessie as before that night. That night, part of Jessie died as well. Confidence, her health, just everything from then went downhill. You'd see a smile on her face, and obviously you're trying to speak about good times and things like that. But it took her a while. Yeah, it did take her a while. But she never, ever, ever got over. What happened, and for me the worst thing is Jesus gone to my grave, not knowing, um, not seeing justice, and that's all you ever want. Every year I think on the anniversary, um, this is another year we don't know. Somebody knows, but we don't know, but somebody else does. Um, yeah, I just wanted—I I don't know—just just for any remaining family members um, and for Jesse's memory that Dodd gets justice
5: So, this is where it happened
8: Yes, Jesse I, I think it is Are you sure you want to do this?
5: No, I'm not but
8: it feels like something that I have to do because I swear George That's a beautiful rose Aye, George liked roses I won't be long Take all the time you need, Jessie Thank you, Helen You're a good friend
5: What am I going to do without you? I keep on imagining that you're going to walk in through her front door, but I know you're not.
1: I love you, George, and I miss you. I miss you so much.
8: Can you take me home, please? Helen... Yes of course.
3: <laughs> it wouldn't have made it easier for her. I think if she had to go through a trial or anything, I, I don't know how she would have coped with that. But yeah, I think she would have she would have wanted to see somebody being punished for, for what they did. To, to Dodd and destroying her life as well. Um, yeah, just you want it, you want justice not just for Dodd but for Jesse, for the whole family. Sorry. somebody knows who did it, how you can defend somebody that's taken somebody's life, I'll never ever know, I'll never know that, a good man, a good couple that
1: didn't deserve what happened to them. When I left David and Rachel's home that day, I sat in my car for a few minutes taking in what I had just heard. David loved George and Jessie. That was very apparent and I don't think he's ever fully processed and dealt with the trauma of losing George. Once the interview was over and as I was leaving their home, David told me that he had agreed to do the interview for a couple of reasons. He hoped by speaking about it, it may just help him come to terms with what happened. And he would do anything that would possibly help the police get the lead that once and for all would finally bring George's killer to justice. David may never get over George's murder, but I do think that one day George's killer will have to answer for the appalling crime that he committed on the twenty-ninth of september nineteen eighty-three. Coming up in episode four of Who is the Cheese Wire Killer. It's a term
5: used in parapsychology psychical research to refer to acquisition of information about the future by a seemingly paranormal means.
2: The Crime Watch side of things was really to get it national because Aberdeen is such a multinational city because we know the cheese wire was manufactured in a company down south.
7: If that person was a psychopath, then it's quite possible that they wanted to kind of hang around and, and watch and see kind of how um, that investigation was then unfolding.
2: There is still a couple of inquiries that we're needing to carry out, but at the moment we haven't identified who the, the wearer of the Iron Maiden t shirt was. And it's always been in my mind for over 40 years. I feel that I could have found the guy responsible and, didn't, and wasn't afforded the opportunity to do that.
1: If you have any information about what may have happened to George Murdoch on the night of 29 September 1983, please do get in touch. A £50,000 reward remains for any information that successfully leads to the identity of the killer. You can private message the George Murdoch Facebook page. Search for Appeal for information, Aberdeen Taxi Driver 1983, George Murdoch on Facebook. You can email jdhallfield at mail.co.uk or you can call Police Scotland on 101, all of which you can do anonymously. Also, please rate, share, And tell people about this podcast. The more people who hear this story, the better chance we have of finally bringing George Murdoch's killer to justice. You've been listening to Who is the Cheesewire Killer? Written, produced, edited, and presented by me, Ryan Ogilvie. Mixed by Christopher MacDonald. Dramatic scenes were produced by Leanne Colston, Rory O'Shea, and Steve Henderson. Actors included Angela Dugat, Ben Barclay, Daniel Warren, Guillaume Potter, Jenny Dunbar, Kenny Blythe, Kenny Luke, Martin Barclay-Bell, Oliver Johnston and Steve Henderson. Music from New Noise Audio and Soundstripe. Studio facilities were provided by Original 106. This is a Mind the Gap creative production.
6: Hello, I'm Violet Manners, and welcome to Hidden Heritage, the podcast that brings you inside Great Britain's favourite destinations. From the same team that brought you the number one history podcast, Duchess, Hidden Heritage will uncover the fascinating stories behind the UK's brightest shining hidden gems. You'll hear from top experts in British heritage, including custodians, historians, artisans, experts... And even the craftsmen and restorers who've worked on some of the most celebrated historic buildings. We will share the untold and unique stories that celebrate UK Heritage. From landmarks to architecture, artifacts to myths and legends. Hidden Heritage will highlight a side to British history you have never seen before. I'm your host, Violet Manners, and founder of Heritage X, and I invite you all to join us on this exciting journey. This is Hidden Heritage. You can find Hidden Heritage wherever you listen to your podcasts.